0: We've got stock analysis investors will want to hear, and a couple of predictions NFL fans probably need to hear. Motley Fool Money starts now.
1: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money.
0: Global headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's The Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool senior analyst Emily Flippin and Andy Cross. Good to see you both. Hey! Hey, Chris! We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will dig into the business of the NFL with our guest, Andrew Brandt. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the rise of the machines. This week, saw two of the biggest companies in the world, Microsoft and Alphabet, hold events centered around artificial intelligence. On Tuesday, Microsoft showed off a new and improved Bing search engine with ChatGPT. Later in the week, Alphabet held an event to show off BARD, the company's new AI chatbot. Unfortunately, the demo included the chatbot making a mistake, and shares of Alphabet fell nearly 10%. Emily, let me start with the stock. Is that an overreaction by investors? 10% Ten percent off of Alphabet shares.
2: On one hand, of course, you want to say that's ridiculous, right? Alphabet's a dominant company, basically owns search. They're going to figure out AI if AI is the next big thing. But at the same time, you're kind of like, you had one job, right? You had one job. You had to respond to this demo, and the one thing you did had a mistake. So it's it's a you know a gunshot reaction. I think in this case, it's probably justified over the short term. Doesn't make a difference for either of these companies over the long term. Definitely not. But it does just show one thing, which is can we stop talking about AI now? Because AI is not smart enough, right? It might be artificial intelligence, but that doesn't mean that it's not dumb. And I think if we can see anything from chat GBT to BARD, it's that we're not quite there yet when it comes to artificial intelligence, especially when it comes to replacing our basic search. Um, you know, this is my uneducated opinion, but my my two cents here. I think, I think something like ChatGBT works well when there is simple facts. So when you're looking at coding, for instance, that is Black and white, the code works or it doesn't work. Artificial intelligence can help you get there, but when you're asking a question for which there is no true source of truth, right? Like everybody following my home buying journey, I'm shopping for home insurance. That search takes me hours to get down to find one person that I'm going to go with. What I want the policy to look like. There is no way that AI, as it exists today, can replace that. So I'm tired of acting like it is.
3: Yeah, this is for me. This is more. Uh, less about chat, GPT, connection with Bing for consumers and really Microsoft's interest in really integrating artificial intelligence through all of the tools they have through in their entire corporate suite. I think that's really where they are seeing the value. In my mind, they were seeing the value, and I think that will actually be beneficial to them. The risk to Google, of course, and, and I support Google, and I, I still think it's a it's a business that you can own and take advantage of prices, of price drops like this to, to, to buy. Uh, they've been so dominant in search, Chris. And so, I think the market saw this as a, as a big existential risk. Google has been investing in AI for I gosh, years, probably. I mean, they, the data is their thing. So, they will get this right. They will integrate. BARD was a big mistake, a PR um, nightmare, I'm sure, for them. But the AI push to integrate that with Search into their business, I think, is just beginning. But it's really, for me, it's beyond G P and really where artificial intelligence goes. And all these big companies, we haven't really heard anything from Apple about this either. And I could see this on the consumer side. Apple really starting to lick their chops on the AI side
0: you have to believe Apple enjoys watching two competitors going at each other instead of Apple.
3: Well, I think so too, and I'm sure Amazon's not um, not not really sweating that after this week either. Yeah, it's all fun until you get pulled into the ring. <laughs>
0: exactly, that's right. Let's get to some earnings news, and we will start with Disney. The Parks and Experiences division carried the day in the company's first quarter profits and revenue, beating expectations. In addition to announcing layoffs of seven thousand employees. CEO Bob Iger also said Disney plans to cut $3 billion in content costs. Andy, if there's one thing Wall Street likes to hear about, it's moving towards higher profitability.
3: Well, and and, and um, Bob Iger was very adamant about pushing towards profitability for Disney+, Plus because obviously, with all the billions they've lost on that, that's that's been a, a, a sore point for him and, and for shareholders, for sure. Chris, there was so much in this report. I was just trying to digest it all from restructuring to reporting on the parks. As you mentioned, the parks revenues were up 21%. That even includes reducing the U.S. peak holiday capacity by 20% to really increase increase, improve the guest experience. Operating margins were up to back to 35%. So very impressive on the park side. But as you mentioned, Really, the restructuring with that massive plan to for Bob Iger to really bring back the brands and the creative side in charge at Disney, which under previous CEO Bob Chapek kind of got separated. Um, It was more centralized over the business side. So, trying to bring back the uh, the uh, authority as well as the accountability to the to the creative side under the ESPN um, business, under Disney Entertainment and Disney Parks. Uh, That was a big part of it. Also, a little bit of a non. Of maybe returning to the dividend, the dividend was cut. Maybe getting back to the dividend—it's not going to be nearly as—I don't think it'll be nearly as big as it was before—and they implied that. But still, getting back to the dividend, reducing the, the the costs that aren't effective, they're going to still spend billions and billions on content, Chris. But definitely getting that in line towards the profitability to Disney Plus and really bringing back um, the creative uh, impetus to drive subscriber growth, drive the entire. Uh, core part of Disney on the creative. That's what Bob Iger said for months ago. He said he was going to do this. And they also implied that they would have the restructuring, and now they announced it.
2: Well, you have to think they're frothing at the mouth, ready to go with these these new subscribers because of all the flack Netflix is getting for potentially changing the way that they're instituting password sharing. If I was Disney at this point, I'm looking for a PR move to say right now, hey, we don't care if you share passwords, just say subscribed.
0: Lyft posted decent revenue numbers for the fourth quarter, but shares of Lyft fell 35 percent on Friday after those results came with weak guidance for the current quarter. Not the same case for Uber, which posted a surprise profit in its fourth quarter report earlier in the week, Emily. We think of these companies, I mean, they're in the same business, they came out at the same time. We think of them as being similar. You look at these very different results, though, boy, Lyft is in trouble.
2: Yeah, from a consumer perspective, there's virtually no difference, right? When I hail an Uber, which I you know, refer to as Uber regardless of where I'm pulling it, but I open up Lyft and I open up Uber, I compare, I pick the cheapest or the fastest, whatever it may be. But these are actually two entirely different businesses. And this is a good example, The most recent quarterly reports about why. Uber has a level of scale, efficiency, and then additional segments that Lyft just doesn't see right now, which is causing the difference in operating performance. So so, Lyft, as you mentioned, they're doubled in losses year-over-year year to over $600 million. Uber, in comparison, their operating loss is only around $120 million. They're only profitable because of their equity investments, but their losses are shrinking at Uber, and management is confident they're going to get to adjusted profitability this year, whereas Lyft is still going through their cost-cutting phases, efficiencies, trying to understand how they're going to reach scale. Um, so, Uber really outperforming just in terms of efficiency. You can look at it in terms of their employee count, too. I mean, their global Business, they have a ton more employees than Lyft, but they pull in 25% more revenue per employee, uh, contributing to that scale. So Uber just outperforming
0: Lyft here. PayPal's fourth quarter results came in higher than expected, but that took a backseat to the announcement that CEO Dan Schulman is leaving the corner office later this year. Andy, it's been kind of a rough, let's just call it 12 to 18 months for the overall business. Um, what is your thought, first and foremost, on Shulman saying, I'm leaving?
3: Well, it's interesting how he will leave, Chris. He announced that he will retire at the end of the year. The board of directors will undergo a search, and they'll have plenty of time for the transition. I guess a little bit different than maybe we've seen recently with some of these different transitions. We've seen with co-CEO and not co-CEO, and, of course, we had the Bob Iger and Bob Chapek Um rough handoff. So, so, I mean, he's 65 years old. He's been doing this for a long time. I can't say I'm. it's totally surprising that he would want to hand this off. But I'm kind of impressed that he announced it. And now he's going to be open and transparent as it kind of go through the quarter. I imagine there'll be a lot of questions about that. The quarter was actually pretty strong, Chris. I think we're seeing that stabilizing in margins. The revenues were up 7%, 10% in the U.S., uh, 6% internationally. The, the transaction take rate was about flat. Earnings per share was up about 11%. I Above their own guidance, and they guided for a pretty healthy growth in earnings this year. As they continue, they had to lay off 7% of their workforce or in their process doing that. So, And they indicated that 2023 is off to a very good start. So I think as they continue to expand the reach of both Venmo and PayPal, partnering with now, like when they have a, um, uh, Buy with Venmo through Amazon, so they're continuing to innovate into that space. It's very competitive. You're not paying much for PayPal now at 19 times earnings for a company that probably can grow in the low to mid double digits. And that's a pretty good, as they find the new CEO who will obviously have a different charge and different company to take over.
0: PayPal is a $90 billion company. As you say, this is a very competitive space. How attractive is this job? Is this a situation where Shulman and the board of directors are kind of going to get their pick?
3: I think it is still attractive. I imagine that a, a, a CEO of a company like this in that space, PayPal and Venmo and those brands, very dominant when you think about wallet search and checkout. So I think it's very attractive to take on. Of course, it's a different business than when Dan was running it five, 10 years ago. So now it's a much larger financial institution competing against so many different payment players in the
0: space. Coming up after the break, we've got the latest in restaurants, healthcare, and just in time for the Super Bowl, snacks. Stay right here. This is Motley Full Money. Yeah. Hey, hey. 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 Welcome back to Motley Full Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Andy Cross. Cloudflare ended the fiscal year on a positive note shares of the cloud services provider getting a boost due to record operating profit in the fourth quarter. Emily, when you look at Cloudflare, what stands out to you?
2: Well, Cloudflare is an incredible business, has a lot of white space. But if I was an investor, I would not be looking at this quarter and you know, having a victory lap. Because I think a lot of the reason why the stock is up and stock has been up over the past month or two is largely due to valuation, less so than business performance. So, Cloudflare, for instance, the stock is up more than 40% so far in 2023. And that's true for a lot of these unprofitable tech esque businesses, Cloudflare just being one example. But the quarter was good. As you mentioned, you know, revenue and earnings surpassed expectation. The business generated the highest free cash flow it has ever generated in the most recent quarter. All of those things are great. But let's not, you know, put the cart before the horse here. Cloudflare and a lot of these growth companies are facing one big challenge, which is growth is slowing down. Now growth is still more than 40%. That's incredible. I don't want to downplay that, but it is slowing. Gross margins on both the gap and adjusted level are falling as well. Operating margins on a non-adjusted level are also falling. The business's dollar-based net retention rate has contracted every single quarter for the last four quarters. Still incredible results. Like, Let's be clear about that. The dollar-based net retention rate, still more than 120%. Those are metrics that other tech companies would kill to put up. But it is just showing a general trend, which is a lot of these companies are facing the challenges of a slowing economic environment, and their businesses are slowing as a result. So when you see the share up, price up more than 40% this year, I wouldn't Think to myself, the business is 40% better than it was in December. I would think to myself, the valuation and the expectation for this company got so low that it's causing this probably short term bump in the share price itself.
0: Shares of Chipotle down 6% this week after fourth quarter profits and revenue came in lower than expected. Same store sales were also light. And, you know, Andy, it is not often that Chipotle's results disappoint Wall Street, but this was one of those times.
3: It was, Chris. 5.6% on the same store. Uh, Growth versus 6.9% expected. Uh, that that had an impact on both the revenue and then, obviously, the profitability. Even the restaurant operating margin at 24% was up from 20% a year ago, driven by lower delivery transactions, higher menu prices, and lower avocado prices, but offset by higher dairy, rice, beans, and salsa prices as well. So, they opened 100 new stores including with in, that included 90 with a Chipotle. The Chipotle is very interesting, since starting that in 2018, new restaurant production productivity that has Chipotle lane has improved about 1,000 basis points, so they see a lot of productivity. A lot of the stores they're opening will include the Chipotle. Lane. Prices, though, have been increased. They've increased very aggressively on the pricing side, about 15% over the past year. So, maybe that is starting to have a little impact on consumer demand, and that's showing up maybe in the comp
0: store growth, but they're certainly making it up on the profitability, too. But Brian Nickel, the CEO, sort of made some comments. Um, and you go back a year, and Nickel talked about how this is a business with pricing power. They're going to, exercise, they're going to raise prices and sort of test those limits. His comments this week make me think that they've kind of hit the upper limit of that, and they're probably holding the line on prices for the foreseeable future.
3: That's exactly right, Chris. He said he expects the same store growth to moderate in the second quarter and the third quarter. They've had a very good start to the year, but in the second quarter and the third quarter, because those prices that they increased last year, they won't be able to. They'll be lapping those, so they won't have those again. So that will be a little bit of a, of a drag on the growth. Interesting to note is that they are really expanding the menu. They're including a lot more of these lifestyle bowls, and I've always liked the simplicity of the Chipotle menu. So, I do worry a little bit that the menu is getting a little bit more complex than in the past.
2: On the contrary, and I know right now (gasps) is not the best time to say this because the price of eggs are insane, but breakfast is still an option. You know, expanding it there. Don't charge more, offer more.
0: Two big headlines this week for CVS Health. One is that fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. The other is that CVS Health bought primary care provider Oak Street Health in a deal just north of $10 billion. Emily, which is the bigger story to you?
2: Yeah, yeah. Fourth quarter results, revenue up 10%. (laughs) Another great quarter, pharmacy, healthcare, it's all doing well. Let's talk about these acquisitions. Uh, CVS Health has a long history of making really bold acquisitions. In fact, it was a retailer that didn't get into the game of of healthcare and pharmacy, except through a number of really expensive, large acquisitions. And it's done wonders for their business. It's the fastest-growing segment of the company today. Um, But they've kept up that strategy in recent years. Listen, the largest acquisition being Aetna Health in 2018, which was a nearly $70 billion acquisition, heavily levered up CVS's balance sheet. And the business has been slowly paying down that debt, but the problem is their debt load is still hanging around $50 billion today. So when you see two large acquisitions coming through, this one for Oak Street Health that I believe is around a $10 billion acquisition alongside their pending $8 billion acquisition of Signify Health, on one hand, I say, healthcare has been great for them. I like seeing them continuously push in that direction. On the other hand, I'm saying, man, that's a lot of acquisitions, that's a lot of debt, they better know what they're doing.
0: Shares of Pepsi up a bit this week as fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. The beverage and snack giant also issued upbeat guidance for 2023. Though interesting to note, Andy, similar to Chipotle, Pepsi basically said they are done raising prices for the year.
3: It, it, very similar to Chipotle, uh, Chris, uh, the fourth quarter gross margin was flat with a year with a year ago, which means which tells me that they they have been able to offset some of the input costs that CEO Ramon Laguarta has had talked about because those costs had increased. So they've had that pricing increases, but also implied that it's going to be a little bit dicey going throughout the year. They're going to be very cautious on their pricing. The with the consumer in a certain estate, but it was a very strong quarter with revenues up 11%. On the organic revenue side, up, up almost 15%. They saw growth. Frito-Lay was up 18%. Quaker Foods was up 10%. Pepsi North America was up 10%. And that really showed up now, both on the growth side and in the profitability side. And they increased the dividend, or at least plan to increase the dividend by 10%. So that's the 51st consecutive increase by, by Pepsi. And so shareholders who like it, like I do, for that dividend, we will be appreciative of that increase.
0: You know, we talk about um, November, December being such an important time of year for the retail industry. You think about the business that Pepsi is in; they they kind of have it all year round, don't they? Like they, people are loading up on beverages and snacks during the holidays. We got the Super Bowl this weekend. You know, pretty soon we're going to be talking about well, it's going to you know it's going to be Memorial Day. Got to start grilling.
3: Well, the other area they saw some really interesting shift in growth growth as we uh, were stuck in our houses essentially during COVID and we started shipping more and more snacks. I know my family started shipping more box snacks. We just have big boxes of Frito-Lay snacks and chips for the kids, just for the kids. (laughs) <laughs> uh, showing up on our doorstep. And so th- that was a shift, and now they're, they're, they're going to start to see that, but they're so wide and they have such good distribution that it's going to be a good spot for, for Pepsi
0: to play in. All right, Andy Cross, Emily Flippen, we will see you a little bit later in the show. Potato tips. How my mouth just drip, potato tips. A big change could be coming to the NFL playoffs. Drugs, Details after the break with our mind. guest, Andrew Brandt. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. <laughs> potato tips. How my mom does Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Andrew Brandt is the director at the Morad Center of Sports Law at Villanova University. He's a columnist at the Monday Morning Quarterback and host of the Business of Sports podcast. He's a busy guy, which is why we always appreciate when he takes time to join us. Andrew, thanks for being here.
1: Always a pleasure. As I said, we get together usually this Friday, this Thursday,
0: Friday, Saturday before the Super Bowl every year. It's always a nice visit. Uh, let's start with Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL. Just had his uh, you know, annual state of the league address press conference. Uh, I was saying to you earlier, I I feel like the NFL is stronger than it's ever been, and I just wonder if this, if the NFL were a public company what would they even list in the risk section at this point? I mean, by your observation, is the league at the height of its powers?
1: You know, we've talked about threats and risks to the NFL over the years, even uh, uh, with you before. And one thing that always came to mind earlier was health and safety and concussions. And even beyond concussions, we had the most serious health event in the, maybe in the history of the league a few weeks ago in Buffalo, I'm sorry, with Buffalo against Cincinnati, uh, that seems not a memory, but that seems not front and center anymore. They seem to have moved past that. They moved past whatever downside there was to the Colin Kaepernick situation. Um, it may be Chris, where it's just kind of too big to fail. It's become such a monolith and I say that because I watched that press conference from Commissioner Goodell and it's like, why do we even have this? You know, he's just saying bland, unrevealing corporate statements that don't reflect any depth. He thinks the officiating is as good as ever. He thinks minority hiring is as good as ever. He thinks the safety thing is as good as ever. He has no concerns about any of the concerns that the media has. And in some ways, Hey, they're th- they are a monolith. They're the most popular league in the in the country by far, the most watched league by far, the most profitable by far, the biggest revenues by far, the best
0: collective bargaining agreement, the best media contracts, etc. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, his comments on uh, the state of minority hiring and refereeing because those were the, those were the I I and I get that part of his job is to just sort of. Um, you know, take some hits on behalf of the NFL owners, right. and um, I even get that it's not his job to say particularly interesting things. But the, yeah. you know, the comments on those two topics in particular just struck me as an opportunity to at least say, "Hey, we can be doing a better job on this." And he didn't even go that far
1: now let's quickly look at each one the minority hiring obviously people focus on the head coach and that hasn't been stellar results in recent years for a league that's 70 percent african-american and whatever the numbers have been in recent years that haven't been great but you factor in ron rivera minority hire who's, who is hispanic mike daniel hired last year who has some minority blood in his heritage And you're getting, you have a couple of minority hires this year, so you're getting up there in terms of salvageable numbers, but no one feels like it's a representative sample. But there is positivity on the management side because uh, there are now eight general managers and or presidents that are African-American. So that's one quarter of the leagues. that's 25%. That's a healthy number. And I'm sure Goodell harped on that and, and sort of saying that. But it's taken a while. I mean, there's been minority hiring ups and downs since the Rooney Rule was in place in 2001 when I was in the league. And it was more like, hey, you guys got to interview a minority when you hire head coach. We're like, okay, you know, sure. But as we talked about before, what do you do when a ownership is dead set on a certain hire? And no one, black, brown, green, yellow, white, is going to change that person's opinion. That's happened a few times. And then these minority interviews truly become sham interviews. I don't know if we have a solution for that. And the referee? Didn't look good. <laughs> no. In the biggest stages of the year, especially the Cincinnati-Kansas City game, um, it's a hard job. Gosh, I mean, everyone has to realize that. And we're seeing things in super slow motion and the referees are seeing it in real time in the cold, people much younger, much more active, fit, physically fit than them. Uh, when he says it's as best as it's ever been, that's where you have to take issue with it. You can say it's a hard job. You can say no one ever gets it right. You can say there's human error, but best it's ever been. That one got me like, We've had not only that game, but other games in the playoffs. Um, And side note, Chris, I don't understand the all-star crews. In other words, there are crews throughout the year that go from game to game. Same referee, same line judge, same back judge, a group of 10 people that travel throughout the year. But once you get to the playoffs, it's, quote, all-star crews. So an umpire from this crew, a back judge from this crew, a lines judge from this crew. I don't get it because cohesion is a big part of that. So... That would be a question I would ask, like, why are we doing this in the biggest games of
0: the year? Uh, in terms of the finances for individual franchises, uh, where I live, when one of the big stories is uh, the expectation that sometime after the Super Bowl, Dan Snyder um, is going to put the Washington franchise up for sale. and. You tell me what? What? How many billions of dollars is uh, this franchise likely to sell for? Seven, eight?
1: <laughs> Personal note here. I'm the city where you're coming from is where I grew up, and my fondest memories going to RFK Stadium with my dad as a kid. Washington Redskins fan diehards we were. So my friends and family have all been asking me that question for years and years. When can we have a new owner? He's not popular, as everyone knows. There's litanies of lawsuits against him. There's investigations that if one that got buried and one that's ongoing, Congress has looked into him. With all that as a background, it does appear we're inching towards a separation. Now, all we know is Bank of America is pursuing potential transactions. That can mean a minority share. That can mean a majority controlling share. We don't know. One thought I had was relates to your question where Daniel Snyder wants to see the price before he decides, I'm selling this much, I'm selling this much, I'm selling out, I'm getting out, taking my money and run. We'll see. Uh, the reports came out when the bidding opened, uh, the f- first round of bids were due in December 23rd. The reports were were up to $6.3 billion. That doesn't mean all of them were up to six, And that doesn't mean there won't be more coming in higher than that. But you mentioned the seven number, that's been floated around. For context, the Denver Broncos sold for $4.6 billion to the Walton family, the Walmart family, one of the richest families on earth. And that was a multiple of two times what the previous sale was, which was the Charlotte Panthers, I'm sorry, Carolina Panthers to David Tepper for $2.27 billion. So we're seeing this economic geometric growth so far. We'll see if it uh, applies to their commanders as well.
0: Jeff Bezos is one of the names floated out there yeah. as a potential owner. Um, whoever it is, and let's just for the sake of this conversation, let's assume that it's a completely new owner, new majority owner of the team. Um, uh, any new job has its adjustment period what what has been your observation with new nfl owners uh, whether it's the length of the learning curve or just sort of uh, to the extent that you see sort of common mistakes um, or realizations that they go through
1: yeah this one's hard to generalize because we do have owners come in and they are very whatever the word is submissive docile wanting to learn wanting to spend time you know, I think of Arthur Blank when he came in owning the Atlanta Falcons, coming in from Home Depot and all the success, but he was very studious in what I observed in owners' meetings, learning, taking notes, talking to more senior owners. But this was before my time, but as everyone knows, then you have an owner with tremendous gusto and bravado like Jerry Jones, who's coming in like a bull in a china closet, swept out Tom Landry, swept out Gil Brandt, swept out the whole Tech the whole former Cowboys and brought in his college coach, Jimmy Johnson. So it's different for that. I think we've seen in recent years owners wanting to sort of get on the map quickly. Um, And if we could, for a minute, just transition to our timing, because one of the biggest trades in NBA history happened this week where the great, I think one of the top 10 players in, in modern era, Kevin Durant, is traded to the Phoenix Suns, who just... Got a new owner within the last month. Uh, a young guy, Matt Ishbia, forty-one-year-old mortgage lender, and that's quite a splash for his first move. So you see it in all types, uh, where someone coming in will have a learning curve, but they may just want to go for it and use the whatever bravado they have just to get it get it
0: out there. Before we get to the big game, I want to ask you about the conference championship games because. Uh, we had the prospect this year yeah. of a neutral site for the afc championship game it was going to be set in atlanta and it it didn't work out that way but the league prepared for it very quickly just in case they had to and now it sort of raised this prospect of future conference championship games moving to neutral sites i see the economic reason for doing that but it also occurs to me, Andrew, that the NFL, more so than maybe any other major professional sports league in America, really does a great job of rewarding regular season performance. I mean, every week in the NFL matters, every game matters. Yeah. And if you've earned the number one seed, Uh, you've got home field through the playoffs. I I don't know. Where do you think this is going and how do you think owners will react? Well, two things. Home field is very important. We have it right now, Kansas
1: City and Philadelphia. were the top seeds. All they had to do was win two home games and here they are in Phoenix for the Super Bowl. I've been very vocal about this and and getting a lot of arrows thrown at me because I say that neutral site championship games are an inevitability. And I say that not to advocate for it, but to say the reality of the business of sports and business of the NFL is you have to. It is going to have so many opportunities and it happens in college. College football playoff is two neutral sites, then a neutral site championship. March Madness is 64 neutral sites. So it's going to happen and people say, well, how are they gonna make more money? Well, let me just say, Philadelphia and Kansas City had notice of a championship game this year for four days. Imagine knowing where the championships game's gonna be for eight months or a year, and all the sponsor activation you could do, all the ticket sales you could do. They said that, you know, Atlanta game had sold out 50,000 tickets, not knowing who was gonna be in the game. So these are the kind of things that could happen. Think three Super Bowls instead of one. There'd be bidding for the game, There'd be hotels bidding. I mean, the whole thing. So that's why I don't think the owners are gonna turn down that revenue stream eventually. Not this year, not next year. But I think that will happen. I know that upsets people. But that's just, you know, whoever thought we'd have a 17th game in the NFL? Whoever thought we'd have championship games presented by TurboTax? You know, that's just where we are.
0: If you had to put a little wager on Super Bowl 57, what would you be wagering on? <laughs> I talked to you from my
1: home outside of Philadelphia, but that's not the reason I'm going to say this. <laughs> um, I think they're a juggernaut. I think it's the Eagles year. Everyone else has been living in it since September. I've watched a lot of Eagles games. And frankly, a lot of them have not even been competitive, including the two playoff games. They outman the giants, of course, And the 49ers quarterback got hurt, but he got hurt because the Eagles got him hurt. Um, I think beyond Pat Mahomes, I don't see a lot of matchups that favor the Chiefs. Now, of course, Pat Mahomes is Pat Mahomes, but Jalen Hurts is right there, not too far behind. So I like the Eagles. I think they have an historically good offensive line and defensive line. And for people who aren't big football fans listening that's the trenches. You know, we focus on the skill, the sexy ride receivers and running backs and quarterbacks, but the game is won in the down and dirty offensive and defensive lines. And the Eagles have been built that way where they, I think they'll get a lead and I think they'll just run the ball and impose their will in the second half. So I'm, you know, I'm going out on a limb here because it's not just picking the Eagles. I'm saying, I don't think it's going to be very close.
0: A blowout. It's 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 back to the 80s for the Super Bowl. I, I just think so. I mean,
1: the again, people are not big football fans, but Tyreek Hill loss has not bothered the Chiefs that much, but I think it will in this game. I think their receivers are going to be hard to separate to have that big, deep threat that Pat Mahomes
0: needs. So, yes, <laughs> I am picking an old-time Super Bowl blowout. You can read his stuff online at the Monday Morning Quarterback and listen to the Business of Sports podcast. Andrew Brandt, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, Chris. If you're looking for Andrew's thoughts on a weekly basis, go to andrew-brandt.com and sign up for his weekly email called Andrew's Sunday 7. Right after the break, Andy Cross and Emily Flippen are back with a couple of stocks on their radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again in studio with Emily Flippin and Andy Cross. You've heard me talk before about Stock Advisor, our flagship investing service, where you get two stock recommendations every month. But if you're looking for more research and recommendations, check out Epic Bundle. Epic Bundle combines The Motley Fool's four foundational stock investing services into one membership. With Epic Bundle, you get immediate access to all of the research and recommendations within Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, Real Estate Winners, and Everlasting Stocks, and for a lot less money than if you paid for each one of those four services individually. For more details, just go to epicstart.fool.com. That's epicstart.fool.com. Dot com. I put a little link in the show notes for those of you listening to the podcast. Alright, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Rick Engdahl, is going to hit you with the question, Andy Cross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Well, it's Super Bowl weekend, Chris, so I'm going with Domino's Pizza. Hopefully,
3: many people will be eating a lot of pizza. One of the largest pizza companies in the world, more than 18,000 stores, nearly all franchise across 90 countries. Market share in the U.S. is about 15%. Makes most of the money from franchise operations, like fees from using the Domino's name, a percentage of sales and equipment and supplies that the franchisees have to purchase. Opened 1,200 stores in 2021. Has an massively and early in the technology from things like the heat hot bags to 3D car tops, online mobile ordering in 2007, self-delivery vehicles. I haven't seen one of those, but I think that they're out there somewhere. One of the just best run businesses, net profit margin of 10% are impressive, but the returns on capital, so the returns they make on the invested business north of 40 or 50%, very impressive. Pays a small dividend. It's increased 19% annually over the last five years. I think the stock was very impressive. Interesting. A little bit of a yield, so you can get that little bit of yield for yield seekers, too. But I'm looking at Domino's
0: Pizza, DPZ, for the Super Bowl. Rick, question about Domino's? These days, with Uber Eats and Grubhub and all those uh, delivery companies, why would anybody order pizza from Domino's when you can order it from...
3: So many better pizzas because the pizza is delicious. Oh, sorry, I, I missed that. Bit.
0: <laughs> Emily Flippin, what are you looking at this week?
2: Well, I didn't even know it was Super Bowl weekend until right about now. So uh, <laughs> I'm looking at something completely different. Although you can probably try to tie it in. I'm looking at Boot Barn. Uh, the ticker is B O O T, as in boot. And I'll tell you what. When I started researching this company, I thought I was special because I knew about it. I'm from Texas, so I'm familiar with my boots. But this is actually the largest retail chain of specialty Western clothing. And much to my surprise, surprise. They have more than 300 locations across 40 states in the United States, so really well-diversified in terms of their footprint. Um, The thing that makes them special is that Boots are a pretty big purchase, as it turns out, and people like to have a very special experience. So Their employees are knowledgeable, they have a really strong, nice, easy e-commerce portal, and they have a goal of tripling their store count, which is probably achievable given the fact that they've increased their annual sales per store by more than 50% over the last couple of years.
0: Rick, question about boot barn.
1: My family's from Kansas, so as a kid, I've worn my share of Western wear. Um, it's been a long time, though. I have to say, I miss fringe. <laughs> does boot, does this company like have any hope of bringing fringe back to fashion? I, I am such a
2: poser here because I I've actually never <laughs> worn a pair of boots. <laughs> I claim Texas when it's easy for me, and I don't when it's when it's not. I didn't even know fringe was out of fashion.
0: I think I know the answer, Rick, but what do you want to add to your watch list?
3: Uh, I need some boots, maybe (laughs) a hat, too, and something hanging from my sleeves, that has got to be something. (laughs) I'm going to check the site.
0: Andy Cross, Emily Flippin, thanks so much for being here.
3: Thanks, Chris. Thanks,
0: Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.